We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount until we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, which will be in a few weeks from here. But uh, we're just at the beginning of chapter 7. If you're not familiar with the sermon, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we're starting the final third here. And I got a question for you. Do you guys think that people really change? Good. You know, there's a, there's a lot of folks that just don't believe that people change. And I think, obviously, when we get to a certain age, it gets less and less likely that we'll fundamentally change. That window seems to close slowly as we get older. But that question is a good one. Do people really change? And, of course, the answer is yes and no. Don't you hate when the answer is yes and no? So maybe a better way to put this is that it's a qualified yes that people change. Um, Obviously, I believe in change. I'm in the business of change. If I didn't think people could change, it would be very difficult um, to be a pastor and do what I do. But I do acknowledge that the basic personality types that we're hardwired with at birth, it doesn't change much. I'm an introvert. I'm going to be an introvert to my last breath. That's not going to change. Those of you who know about the Enneagram, your your Enneagram type really doesn't change. It is what it is. That part doesn't change. But think about from our earliest childhood on, the parade of hurts and traumas and neglects and betrayals that cause us to create programs for happiness and survival that we're not really even conscious of, that become core beliefs way down in the unconscious that we're wholly unconscious of because that's where they are. Those things cover over and accrue over that basic personality type, which is just fine. doesn't matter what number you are in the Enneagram scale. It's perfect as long as you are balanced in that. But all of these hurts create these programs that cover everything over, and that unbalances us. From a healthy number, you become an unhealthy number because of all the fears that are now present that are driving us in obsessive and compulsive ways. Those are the things that can be changed. We created them. Our environment and the people around us created them, and we can uncreate them. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but it is possible. And so whatever you are, introvert, extrovert, one through nine on the Enneagram, you will be a healthy number, a healthy introvert or extrovert, a balanced introvert or extrovert. And we will look much more and more like Christ, like Jesus as we go. So yes, I do believe that we can change. So I have a follow-up question for you. Can we change another person? Can we fix them? when we realize that they are broken. Now, this is something that goes around and around the tree because we're always trying, you know, husbands and wives and parents and loved ones of every stripe. If you're in the program, you know what I'm talking about. We're always trying to change people. We can help them, certainly, right? We can help change the circumstances that they're in that have created a lot of the problems that we see. But does that really change them? I just mentioned recovery. I can't tell you how many parents I've seen anguish over their children and doing everything that they can to change them, to fix them, to get them off of the drugs that they know are eventually going to take their lives. They agonize over it. They're trying to change. Spouses are doing the same thing. And they keep trying, you know, with their support, with rehab, money, also love and forgiveness. 
But no matter what they do, the change that we see on the end of all of that is pretty much random. It doesn't rise above the law of averages. Some change, some don't. Last week, we uh, read a story about Mr. Rogers. I don't know how many of you were here, but the story of Mr. Rogers, where he went to hear a, a, a preacher as he was in seminary. This is early on in his life. He went to hear a preacher that he heard a lot about that was supposed to be a great expositor, a great orator, and he wanted to take notes and learn from this guy. And he went there with a, a friend, um, a woman from the, from the uh, school that he was at. And he got there, and he was really disappointed because that preacher he wanted to hear was out of town. And so the replacement, a supply preacher, he called it, called him, uh, was an old kind of doddering guy. And the whole time that he's preaching, Rogers is just fuming. And he's, you know, gigging the guy on everything that he did wrong all the way through, you know, and breaking all the rules of homiletics. And at the end of it, when it's mercifully over, he turns to his friend to start complaining about it, and he just sees tears streaming down her face. And she says to him in a whisper, he said everything I needed to hear. That was the beginning of a huge change for Mr. Rogers. The, the sermon was exactly the same. It was the same for everyone who was in the room. It changed her. It touched her, at least. It's up to her to change. But he remained completely unchanged. Now, because of that experience, he started the process of change. He started the process of being present rather than judgmental. But this idea of what we can give that will change people is something that we really need to think about. Who makes the change happen? Now, in counseling, when I'm doing counseling, I realize that primarily what I'm giving is information. It's talk therapy, after all. I'm giving information. I can also give support you know, emotional support, the support of my presence, but primarily it's information and support. And really, that's the only thing that is exchanged in any session, any counseling session. That doesn't make change. That gives data. But until that is acted upon, there is no change in the person. Some change, some don't. The same information is being given out, right? Who can we really fix? Who can we really change? It comes down to the fact that we've got to accept that some things in life are just not transferable between human beings. It doesn't work. We can give material and emotional support. We can give information. But that doesn't change someone. No one can give you, I can't, nobody can, give you the ability to play guitar give you the ability to speak a second language or a first one. Can't give you the ability to ride a bike. Can't give you the ability to love, to forgive, to trust, any of these things. And nobody can give you the ability to change either. The most important things in life are experiential. They're not intellectual. They have to be immersed. They have to be acted on in a process over time, usually a great deal of time. How long does it take to learn a second language? How long does it take to play a musical instrument? How long does it take to learn a sport before things become muscle memory so that you can actually participate and not be thinking about what you're doing constantly? The most important things in life are experiential, and nobody can give us experience. That has to be gotten by ourselves. Now, you may be thinking, but I can give love, right? I can give love? Really? Let's talk about that for a second. How do we actually give love? 
What can we give when we say that we're giving love? Now, years ago, there was a book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. You all familiar with that one? We're pretty much... And so what he says is that everybody has a love language. We have a way that we understand how love is sent and received. Trouble is, everybody has different love languages. He says there's five basic love languages. And if we're sending on a different frequency, if we're sending and speaking a different love language, then it's not going to be received as love, even though that's the way we think we're sending it. And so the five love languages are dealing with words of encouragement, service, acts of service, Gifts, the giving of gifts, giving of quality time, and then touch. Those are the five ones that he identified. And that's a pretty good summary of the ways that we can exchange, right, what we call love. That's what we can give. Basically back to support and information. But the question is, how is it received by the person that we're trying to love? I mean, the classic thing is that the husband brings home flowers and the wife really wants him to take out the trash, right? Missing on the love language. And so it's not received that way. And when it comes right down to it, love that is given in words and deeds and gifts and time and touch is really still only support and information until it's responded to, until we judge it. We were talking about judging last week until we judge it as love according to our language, according to our set standards, according to how we understand love, according to how it was displayed to us as a child, healthily or unhealthily. There's no way that that is going to actually be received. What we feel in terms of love, what we experience in terms of love, can only be given as support and information until it's received by the other person until it's reciprocated by the other person, which then completes the circuit. Have you ever uh, been loved by someone that you didn't want to be loved by? I think we've all had that experience, have we? You know, Even just the bringing of flowers can be just a cringe because it's like, no, but this guy over here, yeah. It's all about the way that we send and receive, what we understand about love. It's about the reception. It's about the reciprocation. That's where the connection happens in love. There's this great song by Bonnie Raitt, I Can't Make You Love Me. You all know that one? One of the best choruses in lyrically. Let's see if I can remember it. I can't make you love me if you don't. I can't make your heart feel something it won't. Here in the dark in these final hours, I will lay down my heart and I'll feel the power. But you won't. No, you won't. Because I can't make you love me if you don't. I think we've all been there on both sides of that equation. We think we're giving love, but it's not received that way. We're giving support and we're giving information. We're giving touch and words and this and that. But until it's received... We can't make the other person love us. We can't make the other person change. It doesn't work that way. There is no way to do that. We don't change or fix anyone. And Jesus can't either and couldn't either. And that may sound a little strange to you, maybe even a bit heretical. So let me get out on that limb and talk about it a sec. Because he never said so. 
Go back and read the actual words of Jesus. He never says, I forgive you. He never says, I heal you. What does he say? He says, your sins have been forgiven. Passive voice. He's recognizing what is already there. He's not the actor. He's the receiver, right? He says, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you well. The person who is healed is the actor. They are the ones who let go of the blockage, whatever it is, that lets the power of God flow through. Jesus can be catalyst. He can be the face of that healing. But he never says, I do it. This is a tiny little detail, but it is so important to understand because it changes everything. It changes the way that we're going to relate. It changes the way that we're going to approach life. If we understand this in the way that Jesus is talking about. So then it comes down to what can we do, I suppose, right? Well, what we can do is focus on the one person that we can change, right? And this is what Jesus has really been talking about in Matthew 7. Who can we change? What can we actually do? The first thing he said last week was, don't judge, lest you be judged. And the standard that you use, the measure that you use for judgment will be measured to you. And that sounded punitive to us, but we talked about that. In fact, let's read it. Matthew 7, right at verse 1. We're going to read all the way to verse 5, because this whole passage works together. Do not judge that you will not be judged, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by that standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All this is working together. Same theme. The context is the same. In fact, it flows into the next following verses as well, which is, you know, don't give your pearls to swine because they'll trample it, and don't give what is holy to dogs because they'll turn and tear you to pieces. All of this is working together to try to reset the relationship that we have with each other and with ourselves and to define clearly what we can and can't do so that we are digging in the right spot as we move through life. Last week when he was talking about judging, Matthew 7, 1 and 2, what is Jesus driving at here in context of what we're talking about in terms of who can change and how we change? Well, really what he's talking about, if you look at it, he's talking about building a greater awareness, awareness about ourselves, right? Awareness of our relationship with others and with life. Because if we don't have that relationship, if we don't have that awareness, I should say, then we're going to continue to just motor on by the set standards that we have imprinted in us from earliest childhood. Judging and comparing and doing all the things we do that separate one from another and create our own living hell here on earth. But if we can become aware that those programs are in place and choose other than, then everything begins to change. We talked about the difference between judging and discerning. Judging is to remain isolated inside your own bubble, your own mindset, your belief system, your standards of measure, whether it's legal or whether it's moral, whether it's ethical or any other way. 
but to stay isolated within that bubble, continuing to judge and compare everyone else and all else that you see, as opposed to discerning, which is to engage in the experience of the moments around you, engage in the experience of life and others, by which we can then connect and discern what is going on, whether a person is trustful or not, whether a situation is good for us or not, how we choose our, our, our alternatives by discernment is means that we have engaged, we have connected, we have experienced, as opposed to remain isolated within our bubble of judgment. And finally, what Jesus is saying is that what we can do is change our own approach to life and our own approach to relationship, but not anybody else's. Then he's going to illustrate with these wonderful images of the speck in the eye and the log in the eye. And he's using some, of course, Aramaic words here. And maybe they can give us a little bit better idea what he's talking about. The speck there that he talks about, gelah in Aramaic, can mean a dry twig. It can mean a straw. It can mean a chip, like a chip of wood. It can mean dry chaff. It can be the what they call the beards, you know, the... Uh, the, the fuzz that's around the head of grain that they would rub with their, with their hands to get at the kernel, to get at the part that they could eat, all of those things. And from a, in a rural setting, which he was in the Galilee, of course, it was anything that was floating around in the air that commonly irritated your eyes. That's the gala. That's the speck. He's talking, everybody knew what he was talking about there because they had that stuff. It's like us with a Santa Ana condition and all that stuff blows in from the desert, messes with our heads, right? The log, on the other hand, karita, can mean a beam, a plank, any large piece of squared timber. So, there's where Jesus' humor is coming out. You got to see Jesus. The humor is subtle because it's it's a different culture, and so we're not going to get a belly laugh out of this. But at least we can get a smile, especially if you really go down the road of of uh, imagining what it is, the image that he's drawing for us here. This person with this big squared piece of timber coming out of his eye, trying to take the speck out of the brother's eye. But Jesus does this a lot, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands and feet, you know, lest you be led in into some kind of uh, trespass, right? He talks about if someone sues you for your coat, give him your tunic as well, give him your shirt as well. Well, in that day, that would leave you naked, okay? That was funny to them. <laughs> You know, when he talks about turning the other cheek, if someone slaps you on your right cheek and then turn and present your left as well. One thing that we don't get from their culture is that everything that the, the Jews did and Semitic people do is with their right hand. The left is the dirty hand. You don't eat with it. You don't do anything except, I guess I shouldn't say what you do with your left hand in the, in the restroom. Okay, that is okay. But everything is done with the right hand. Figure it out. If you are slapping someone on their right cheek, it's this way. It's a backhand, I should say. If you slap them on your left cheek, it has to be a forehand slap. This is a slap from a, a superior to a subservient. That would be, in their culture, a sissy slap, to slap this way. You know, we, They get that. They're getting these images. They're getting the humor of what Jesus is doing. He is engaging them. He's riveting them with his images because it brings them right out of their culture into the truth that he's trying to get across. 
And he's right there with the beam and the speck in the eyes. Now, at first glance, this passage, and in context, what he's talking about, of course, are small offenses versus large sins. All right? He's trying to get the the connection between that. You're trying to take care of this little thing that you see in your brother, nitpicky thing that you're doing with them, calling them out, correcting them, disciplining them. When you've got this huge thing in your life, when he is screaming at the Pharisees, and he did scream at them because of the violence that they were doing to the people, he told them, you strain the gnat and you swallow the camel. Now that means nothing to us. But if you understand that a gnat, we want to know, we'll know what a gnat is, was the smallest unclean animal that the Jews recognized in the Holy Land at that time. If you ate that, you were ritually unclean, and you had to go through all the purification rites. And the camel was the largest unclean animal in their culture. What the Pharisees would literally do is they'd put a cloth or a muslin over their cup before they poured the wine into it so that any gnats that had landed in the surface of the karaf, whatever they were pouring from, would not go into the cup and not go into their bodies. And yet they swallow the camel. The things that they are doing to the people were so egregious, so keeping them from the experience of their God that he had to yell at them. He couldn't stand it any longer. This contrast between small offenses and large sins. And he's telling us outright here, implying it outright, I should say, that it's certainly a lot easier to see other people's problems and issues than it is to see our own. We all know that. How hard is it for you to see the earth while you're standing on it? It looks flat. We know it's round, but it looks flat. How do we get a sense of where we are as we're standing on the earth? But get an astronaut out in orbit, can see things. It's the same way with us. When we're inside the bubble of our issues, how can we see that? This is not a dig at us. It's just a reality. How hard is it for us to see our own faults and issues and problems? How much easier is it to see someone else's and vice versa? It's just the way life works. But that means we need to be more aware, more careful, if we're going to try to help somebody else, help in quotation marks, because often it doesn't go that way. Let's read about... A desert father. I love the desert fathers, just to try to illustrate this point. The desert fathers and mothers were the, uh, the group of early Christians in the 3rd and 4th century. When Christianity was becoming the state religion of Rome, everything started to go haywire from their point of view. It became an institution. It became a powerhouse. It became aligned with Roman power and the Roman army. And to their sensibilities, everything was as a shipwreck, basically, at that point. Their faith no longer made sense to them in that context. And so they fled out into the deserts to try to re-find what it was that their faith was supposed to be about, have it make sense to them. And as they were out there in their either hermitages or in their cloisters, they had people come to them and learn from them, you know, as, as elders. And, uh, there's lots of stories that come out of this tradition. We actually, in the last book study, were reading a lot of those. But in this particular story, a brother in Skidi that was a, uh, a community right outside Alexandria in the desert in Egypt, a brother in Skidi happened to commit a fault. And the elders assembled and sent for Abba, Abba Moses to join them. He was the great elder in their community. He, however, did not want to come. The priest sent him a message saying, Come, the community of the brethren is waiting for you. 
So he finally arose and started off. And taking with him a very old basket full of holes, he filled it with sand and carried it behind him. The elders came out to meet him and said, What is this, Father? Abba Moses replied, My sins are running out behind me like the sand from this basket. But since I don't look back and pay no attention to my own sins, I do not see them. And today I come to judge the sins of another. They, hearing this, said nothing to the brother, but pardoned him. This is a man who has developed the kind of awareness that Jesus is talking about. He is aware of his own faults. Even as he's working to alleviate them, to change them, he realizes the stone is not yet smooth. And yet you're calling to me to judge somebody else? How can I do that from this place of imperfection? Building awareness of relationship with everything and everyone around us, you know, to realize the precedence of love over judgment, over justice, at least in personal relationships. This doesn't mean that justice doesn't mean anything, that we don't need it in the group. Of course we do. But what it means is, even as we are exercising justice, that we hang on to the state of heart that preserves our humanity, that preserves our love, that preserves our sense of connection, and living love the way God loves. That is essential. Yes, justice is essential too. But it's only going to be healing to the community and continue to bind the community together that if those who are practicing it are still coming from a place of unity and connection and a place of awareness to realize that but for the grace of God, there go I. That kind of attitude is what Jesus is trying to promote. That kind of attitude allows us to move into kingdom the state and the quality of life that we can achieve here and now, but only with the kind of awareness that Jesus is talking about. Here's another one from 2 Samuel, chapter 12, 1 to 7. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is King David. And Nathan was one of the prophets. And he came to him and he said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd To prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, rather he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. And then Nathan says to David, You are that man. If you know the story, what did David do? He fell in lust with Bathsheba, seeing her bathing on a rooftop from his king's perch. And he calls her and he brings her in and he lies with her and he impregnates her. And then her husband was out in the field of battle, Uriah. And so he calls him in quickly to try to cover. If he can bring him in and have him sleep with his wife, then he can pretend that it's his child and so on and so forth. But Uriah won't do it because his 
compatriots are still out in the field. He's not going to go into the luxury, and he sleeps on the porch of his house. So what does David do? Sends him out into battle again, but tells the generals to put him on the front line, which is a death sentence, and he's killed. And then he takes Bathsheba as his one of his wives, part of his harem, right? You are that man. David could not make that connection. He's hearing the story. He's outraged by the injustice of it, but he can't see how he did worse than that with human beings. It's amazing what we can be unaware of. It's amazing what we can just not see. Jesus is saying, become aware of yourself and start to work to change the only person in this entire universe over whom you actually have any authority, which is yourself. The only person you can change is yourself. When you're ready, and only when you're ready, this is the problem. We can't make people ready for change. We can barely make ourselves ready for change. And usually it's some outside life event that creates enough pain that makes us ready. But we need to do the work even when we're ready. But until then, what does he say at John 8, 7? You who are without sin, cast the first stone. You whose stone is smooth, now you can cast that stone. Who is there among you? And of course, everybody leaves. But Jesus is actually going deeper than just this. He's taking us to three consecutive levels, verses 3, 4, and 5, and trying to take us deeper into the understanding of what this all means. At verse 3, what does he say? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? He's just pointing to this lack of awareness that we've been talking about. We don't see our own faults. We don't see our own issues. So we really have no authority. We really have no credibility but we're going to try to exercise it anyway, which takes us to verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? He's talking about basically arrogant hypocrisy here, right? Presuming to be able to discipline someone, to correct someone, and specifically to give unsolicited advice. That's a policy we have here at The Effect. We don't give unsolicited advice for this very reason. We don't presume that, presume that you need to be fixed, that we have seen something in you that needs to be fixed, and we're just going to come and tell you about it or give you a time limit of how long you can stay here unless you get fixed, right? It's up to you. It's up to us just to come alongside and continue to love. But this arrogance, this hypocrisy is what Jesus is trying to get us to see. If we can't or won't correct ourselves, assuming the superiority over someone else is probably motivated by a need for some kind of self-justification or self-aggrandizement, whatever it is, but it has nothing to do with the other person and their well-being. And let's face it, people aren't stupid. (laughs) They see right through us. They see what's going on. Don't you? When someone's coming to you under these similar circumstances, who do we think we're fooling? Only ourselves. I know you probably haven't read Hamlet lately, have you? <laughs> there is a great scene in Hamlet 
And I guess uh, just to set it up a little bit, what you need to know, Hamlet is a prince of Denmark. His father has been killed, and he finds out it's his uncle who has killed his father and now has taken the, his mother, the queen, as his own and becomes the king of Denmark, and he's plotting his revenge. At the same time, two of his old friends, Rosencrans and Guildenstern, um, are making you know advances to him and trying to be his bosom buddy again, but all the time they are conspiring with the king to kill Hamlet, and Hamlet knows this. He's not stupid. So there's this great scene where their players have recorders, you know, the little flute instruments, and he takes one from one of the replayers and he hands it, or tries to hand it to Guildenstern, and he says, "Will you play upon this pipe, my lord? I cannot. I pray you, believe me, I cannot. I do beseech you." I know no touch of it, my lord. Tis as easy as lying. Govern these ventages with your fingers and your thumb. Give it breath with your mouth, and it will discourse most eloquent music. Look you, these are the stops. But these I cannot command to any utterance of harmony. I have not the skill. Why, look you now. How unworthy a thing you make of me. You would play upon me. You would seem to know my stops. You would pluck out the heart of my mystery. You would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass. And there is much music, excellent voice in this little organ. Yet cannot you make it speak. Do you think I am easier to be played on than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will. Though you can fret me, you cannot play upon me. We arrogantly think that we're helping, that we're changing people, but we're only deceiving ourselves. If we haven't done the work, if we haven't gotten to a place where we understand that we can't help, we can't change, we can't fix, we can come alongside, we can help change circumstances, but we're not going to change them if we're not changing ourselves. I remember in high school, the game of Indian poker, I don't know if you all played that, you know, did you? I see someone laughing over there. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think you got, you got so many cards down, you got so many cards in your hand, but I remember the last card that you got, you had to lick the back of it and stick it on your forehead without looking at it. So everybody else could see your, your card, but you couldn't see your own, and so you're betting blind. We're all basically playing Indian poker in life. You realize that, right? We've got all of our stuff right on our forehead. People can see it, and we can see theirs but we don't know our own. And that's the problem. Jesus is telling us, become aware. Become aware. Realize what is going on within you so that things can change within you. He's getting us, when we get to verse 5, what does he say? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Basically, he's saying, heal thyself. Start there. Ever heard of airplane rules? Put your own mask on first before you try to help someone putting their mask on. Basically, that's what he's talking about. The Desert Fathers believed that their culture had become, and their religion and their church had become a shipwreck. But as long as they were floating about in the debris with everybody else in the, in the water, they were no good to them. They had to swim for shore, and when they got their feet on dry land, on solid land, then they could reach in and help someone out. But only then. They had to do that work first. We talked about Paul basically a year ago in the middle of all the civil unrest of the pandemic. 
And Paul is here saying, you know, obey your political leaders. Obey those in government. God put them there. Don't mess with them. Just obey them as you're supposed to be obeyed. And if you're a slave, stay a slave. And if you're a woman, stay subservient. And if you're single, stay single. And if you're married, stay married. Basically, just enforcing the status quo. And we're trying to figure out, how is this moral? How is this ethical? What the heck is he talking about? Obviously, this isn't true. But if we put it back into context, he believed, and the early church believed, that Jesus was coming back to the generation that saw him leave. He was coming back in their lifetime. There was a very short amount of time left. And in the present crisis of the persecution that they were getting it from all sides, he was basically tell them, telling them, fight the interior revolution first. Don't blow all of your energy out here fighting city hall and fighting your culture and fighting political realities that is only going to bring the boot down harder. Prepare yourself internally for the return of your Lord. That's what he's telling them. When we take these things out of context, we lose all meaning. And the scripture's ability to help us in our choices right here and right now. Now, had Paul known that it was going to be 2,000 years and counting, all right, I still think he would have said, fight the interior revolution first. Prepare your heart. Prepare your worldview so that when you turn and fight the injustices you see around you, the exterior revolution, you will do it from that place of connection and that place of compassion and that place of wanting to understand the other point of view that will make all the difference as to whether this revolution has any healing powers or if it's just going to obliterate everything about our culture. Airplane rules. Put your own mask on first before you're going to move to try to fix anything else around you. This is the deeper meaning that Jesus is trying to get us to. The only change we can ever make is our own Turn the process inward. Become the person that we say we want others to be. Because that's all we can do. We can't change them, but we can change ourselves. If you're married, how many times have you said you would like to change your spouse? If only I could change this or that, then wouldn't things be nice? No, become the spouse that you want your spouse to be. Because that's the only thing that you can do. And if you're not doing that, and what difference is it going to make if your spouse changes? You're still going to not be on the same page. If you're single, <laughs> I heard this years ago, and I didn't think it was true then, but now I realize how true it is. If you're single, you'll never attract anyone who's healthier than you are. It's a self-leveling process, you know? And even when it seems like we've got someone who's a saint and someone who's just a Neanderthal, <laughs> usually it's the guy, you know? But there are codependency issues and other things under the surface that have brought them together. We don't grow at the same rate. We can become, you know, un, un, unequally yoked as we go. But we all start the same. So what is it that you should do if you're single? Get as healthy as you can. So you can attract someone healthy enough to actually have a relationship with. And for all relationships, take the focus off the others Become the person you want to be with. Become that person. doesn't matter what others do. If you are that person, you're going to be attracting those who are healthy enough to have that kind of relationship with you. But also, you're going to be living in your own heaven, here, now, on earth, regardless of what others do. If you can go there, you will be able to enter kingdom regardless of what others do. 
Now we're getting into Francis of Assisi territory, right? Preach the gospel continuously. Use words where necessary. It's what we do that really makes the difference. If we're not changed by the gospel ourselves, then we're only trading information if we try to share it. What does that do? But if we are living it, everything changes. We don't change anyone else ever. We can help change the circumstances. We can help work through their thought processes that are damaging and limiting to them. We can show them doors. We can even open doors for them. We can create the perfect environment for change for them. We can even help them clear their eyes, wash them out, get their vision more clear. But we have to remember as we're doing all this, there are none so blind as those who will not see or can't see. That's all we can do. We can bring them to the precipice. What are they going to do with that position? But when we take the beam out of our own eye, when we become the change that we want to see in others in life, that simultaneously is the best chance that someone will maybe be moved to follow us, to emulate us, to see that they have the desire to change themselves. In other words, we can help people change only and in exactly the same way that God changes us. Not directly. God never changes us directly because we do have free will, free will that is essential. But it's God's silent acceptance of us, the silent acceptance of perfect love that draws us to himself. But only when we're ready to be drawn. Let's pray. Father, you are the perfect example. You are living this out, unseen, of course, in our lives. But you are also empowering us and have given us everything that we need to do the same. So we're asking that you continue to be patient with us, continue to have the compassion as we stumble in fits and starts. And as we turn to you, make us aware of everything that is present and everything that is available to us to be able to take these first risky steps into the unknown, into what feels like too much vulnerability. But help us to go down into those icky, deeper places so that we can see what is really in operation in our own lives, so that we can begin to bring it up and out and clear out everything that keeps us from you and separates us one from another. So that we, when we help, are really helping. Not taking on the burden of the responsibility of change, but just coming alongside in love and compassion and seeing what happens. Thank you for taking that tack with us, Father. Thank you for never violating our own choice so that when we choose love and choose you, it's for real. 
and remembering that we can only love it all because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.